Kano Kanalos. Finally. This is an episode of Finally, the podcast from Michael Furtick. I have an extraordinary guest today among a series of extraordinary guests. This man stands out. He goes by Pano Kanalos, though his formal name is Panayotis Kanalos. He's the founding president of the University of Austin, also known as UATX, which was recently accredited. Previously, he was president of St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. And he came up in his academic life before he was an administrator as a Shakespeare scholar. Pano, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm really happy to be here, Michael. Looking forward to this. So I have a rule. Our guests can always edit, amend, expand, correct their bio. Would you like to say anything about your bio that I've left out? Uh, nothing about my bio. I do want to clarify on um, UATX. So we're not accredited at this point. We're authorized, which means you can be a degree-granting university, and then you get into the cycle of accreditation that all universities are a part of. So that's phase two. You have to be operating as a university to become accredited. Just want to be clear with the audience. This will be the one and only time in the lives of everyone who listens to this podcast where that <laughs> distinction of authorization and accreditation will ever come up. Ever. It comes up, yeah, it comes up in my life all the time, but I, as I it appreciate should. that. This is your metier. <laughs> you have signed up for this bullshit. I have indeed. Pato, where'd you grow up? So I grew up um, mostly in Chicago. Uh, in you know, I was born in the city, my in, in a kind of Greek American area. Um, but then my family moved out to Arizona. Uh, my dad bought a restaurant out there when I was you know, before high school, and then I did. Okay, high I just school want to be clear there. that your father, the Greek immigrant, had a restaurant. <laughs> is that what? Is that Michael, the story? They, I think I think they are required to hand you the keys to a restaurant if you're Greek <laughs> when you get off the boat. You sort of get off the boat, and they're like, "You're heading to Chicago. Here are the keys." Was there was there a restaurant also in Chicago or no? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was always my father's business. And dare I ask, He's, was it a Greek restaurant or was it not? Never a form like never a formally Greek restaurant. More sort of diner style, with, you know, lots of Greek items uh, and that. He did have like a Greek fast food sort of place, the Euros thing for a while. But um, I mean, he started off like a lot of immigrants, you know, washing dishes and and made his way up, saved money, bought a small business, increased that, and and then we ended up in Arizona. Um, I, 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 not to get on a tangent, but you, the story as to how we got out in Arizona is pretty classic. So I should share. Let's do it. With you. I want to hear it. Let's do it. And how old were you <laughs> so, at the time? I'm about to say nine, nine-ish. Okay, so so it's an important. Pretty young. You're you're but pretty young, but you're still old enough to remember. You know, you remember oh. the time before. You remember the time after. It's a big change. So tell us what happened. Yes. So, um, so my father and my uncle Jimmy, who was also in Chicago, Jimmy the Greek. Your Jimmy uncle was Jimmy the Greek. My uncle Jimmy the Greek. <laughs> this is ridiculous. We're already beyond the, the border of yeah, credibility into, into myth. No, it gets, oh, no, no. Please, you're going to have to suspend your disbelief further. Um, <laughs> so so the two of them were sort of, they were tired of the winters in Chicago. You know, they're both, right. you know, grew up in Greece and came over in their 20s and, um, you know, thought that it would be a really smart thing to head to the West Coast and move, buy a restaurant out there and move our family out there. So they drove across country, the two of them, in, in my dad's old green Lincoln Continental, and they 
went all around Southern California, LA, Orange County, San Diego, looking at possible restaurants, properties, but nothing was really the right fit. So they kind of gave up and they're driving back. And on the way back, they're passing through Phoenix. And they got off the highway in Phoenix. They were hungry and they found a restaurant diner, which happened to be owned by a Greek. And so they go in and they start chatting with this fellow and they, you know, they sit in the booth, they're smoking cigarettes and having coffee. And the owner asked my dad, he's like, well, you know, what are you doing? You guys passing through? And my dad told me, he goes, you know, we've been driving around. We we're looking for a restaurant to buy. And the guy looks around his restaurant. He says, you know, I'm ready to retire. Why don't you just buy this place? And my dad takes a look around and says, it looks pretty good. He's like, how much do you want? I said, $20,000. My dad said, great. And he opens up his jacket, pulls out a, a you know an envelope, starts counting Your dad out $100 Jimmy bills. Jimmy the Greek with a lot of cash. Starts counting out $100 bills. In the diner. Says, Do you have a phone? I have to call my wife. So that's how we ended up in Arizona. That's an incredible story. And yeah. um, quickly, which part of Greece did your father and his brother come from? So from the, the southern peninsula, Peloponnese, so the Peloponnese, Arcadia, like right in the middle of Peloponnese. So the, which a lot of the Greeks in Chicago are from that area. It's a very poor part of Greece, very mountainous, uh-huh. not much opportunity. So a lot of immigrants from there. Do you, do you remember, speaking of Greek diners and so forth, um, apropos of not much apart from that, do you remember the New York, I think I, I think of it as a New York City coffee cup, but the New York City coffee cup with the Anthora? The, oh, sure. The, yeah. Do you know, um, so that's like the canonical coffee cup of New York City and Greek diners and, and, and not Greek diners, but just diners in New York. And I have uh, often um, bought lots of those coffee cups to have in offices for my startups around the United States because I love that coffee cup so much. It makes it, makes it taste like a regular coffee, which is milk and two sugars, which I never take anymore. But that's, that's my sense of it, the, that canonical greek coffee coffee which had nothing to do with greece by the way it's designed by like a like a you know wasp or something like that but it was but it's a it's a classic american coffee cup i sure i sure do remember those i will say that's really a new york phenomenon like in chicago you didn't see those guys it was yeah which was really i i don't know why but every time i go to new york i would grab one so you grew up in were you an only child no i have a sister who's seven years younger Seven years younger. Okay, so she doesn't remember pre-Arizona. You do, but she doesn't. She doesn't. She was, yeah, one, two years old when we moved out there, yeah. And then you grew up for the, for the duration in Arizona, is that right, in Phoenix? I did. I was there through high school, but then I was I returned to Chicago for college. The sort of center of gravity for my family was always Chicago, even when my parents left. So I returned and went to Northwestern University somehow got into Northwestern. I had no idea what I was doing um, and stumbled into university. So that's, so once I moved back there, I sort of stayed in Chicago for a while and haven't lived back in Arizona since then, since going to university. One of the most arresting facts about you is that you are a Shakespeare scholar. How did, how did that happen to you? Or how did you come to choose Shakespeare, was there a time in your life when you understood that was your future? Or was there a time in your life when you found yourself learning that it was becoming your future? You know, I wish you? I wish I had some sort of elevated, inspiring anecdote to share with you, but it's actually really you just saw, about you're a girl. You were in this theater and you saw Laurence Olivier on stage. It's, a, it's about a girl. As it struck uh, by lightning. 
it's so there was a you know really cute girl who lived down the hall from me my freshman well, there's year always the girl cherchez la femme cherchez la femme and she uh you know she asked me one day you know because northwestern is just north of chicago but the l track goes all the way up into evanston or northwestern she said i'm taking the train into the city i have an extra ticket for this play do you want to come and i you know obviously i said yes and so i went down and um I didn't even know we were seeing. I, frankly, up to that point in my life, had never seen a, a, a live Shakespearean play. Um, and we we took the train into the city, ended up at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, which has become a major theater company, but at that time was a kind of back alley, you know, small production company. And uh, the play was, of all Shakespeare plays, it was Troilus and Cressida, which is oh my you know, God. really, really rare and random. Yes. Uh, Coriolanus and Carlos and Cressida, the the least played. Yeah, I mean, it it was random, but but we went into this little theater and it was a thrust stage, so the audience was on three sides and just three rows of seats on each side, and I happened to be sitting right in the front row. And here was this story that came to life, and you know, Carlos and Cressida, of course, is about the Trojan War and 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 the Greeks and the Trojans and this. I mean, just this tale. There was sword fights and passion, and. I was just enraptured. I, I was really enraptured. And I think in many ways, it, it made me very curious about Shakespeare because what I knew of Shakespeare up to that point were sort of the greatest hits, you know, which, you know, Romeo and Juliet, you know, uh, Hamlet, Julius Caesar, that, you know, all seemed kind of, um, you know, w- well-worn. And then I was like, wait a second, this guy also wrote this other crazy play about the Trojan War. This is fascinating. I didn't know this. And that sparked my curiosity and really quickly sparked my interest in seeing everything I could see. So I, you know, even without the cute girl down the hall, I started taking the train into the city and seeing theater and mostly Shakespeare at the time, but other things as well. And so that really was where the, where the kind of deep interest started. Do you have any Charles and Cressida in you? Uh, you mean to, to, to recite? Let's try it. No, I don't. <laughs> I've never been involved directly with the production. There's a, there's, 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 there's one, there's one line. It's, oh, heavens, what some men do, what some men leave to do, how some men creep. Uh, Odysseus, Ulysses. Uh, the, I mean, the most famous speech is the speech of Odysseus. Yeah. When, you know, uh, but no, I don't, I don't have any off the top of my head. I, never I, mind. Usually, we're moving on. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, but it is, but, and here's, here's let me give, here's the oh, That's a pretty elevated story. Like, you know. No, but it's, it gets a little more interesting. Here's the post. Okay, yeah, carry on, so, carry on. So Chicago Shakespeare Theater produced Troilus and Cressida over the next 25 years, two more times. Hmm. So this was, this was their very first season. I later learned it was the very first production they put on as a company. So the one uh, you saw happened to be the first time it was ever mounted. By this the first production they ever did. By, yes, by Chicago Shakespeare. Well, oh. 10 years or so later, um, you know, at this point, I'm now in graduate school pursuing my PhD and focusing on Shakespeare. They put on another production that might have been a 10th anniversary. And, um, and I went and saw it. So I was there for that one. 20 years after the original production, I'm now a Shakespeare scholar. I'm a professor teaching at Loyola University in Chicago. And now I've been tasked with editing the book about the 20-year history of the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, which is now a major institution. Hey, now. 
And so, and the, and the production they put on in honor of their 20th anniversary was Troilus and Cressida since that had been Gotta go back show. to the beginning. So I had the chance to not only edit the book on this theater that sparked my own interest in Shakespeare, but then write an essay about being at each of those three productions over time. So it was really fascinating. Well, for a guy who thinks that he's got nothing elevated to say about his origin story, um, that's pretty marvelous. And by the way, um, you're not sort of any kind of, uh, in general, uh, you're, you're not just a generalist of Shakespeare, an authority in Shakespeare. You're also, correct me, I believe a dramaturg or a, or a, um, a specialist in the dramaturgy, uh, dramaturgy of Shakespeare. Am I right? Yeah, I've, yes, absolutely. So I have a deep interest in not just the kind of scholarly side of Shakespeare, but the production side. And what dramaturgs do, if that's a unfamiliar term to some people, is they're sort of, let's say, the literary consultants on a, on a production. Uh, they're the people who help the actors and the directors understand the text better and understand the conditions that uh, orig conditions of original production and that. So one of my facet fascinations of all, has always been or Shakespearean original practices. Like, you know, what was it like to put on a play in Shakespeare's day? What can we learn from paying attention to the details around those productions? And how does understanding that help us to put on better plays in the present? Well, you're effectively interviewing yourself. Pano Canalos, what was it like to put on a Shakespeare play in Shakespeare's day? <laughs> and what can we learn? <laughs> you're You're paving the road for me here. Give us well, some hints. Give us some, give you, so here's some, tra some trail mix. So, so what's really interesting, I, I'll give a couple um, couple details here. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we know in Shakespeare's day is that um, the, the actors never had a full copy of the script of each play. Uh -huh, uh -huh. All right. So... There was too expensive to produce these, and they were also afraid that if there were multiple copies of a play circulating, that other companies might steal their plays. And there were no directors. So the way the actors rehearsed was they would show up to rehearsal. The, the prompter, who was sort of the person who was in charge of the whole script, would show up and hand each actor a scroll, a rolled up bit of, of paper that had their roles on it. That's why we call them roles, because they were rolled up. And the, they would un, oh, they would unscroll this, and they would have all their lines. And before each of their line um, it's segments, there's a squid. Uh, there would be like a three word cue. Yeah. So they would only know what the three off words my horse. For what they would say, right? And so <laughs> they would have to essentially the actors get together and stitch together the play through rehearsal and uh -huh. figure out who was saying what when. But what that did was, I mean, it's a very different way of, of thinking about rehearsing or putting on a play because, you know, modern actors, what do modern actors do? They read the play and they do research and for weeks on end, they're thinking about their character and they're, you know, diving into the soul of Hamlet and all that. These guys were, they're pros and they were putting on 30, 40 plays a year. They Gotta got their lines, they stitched it together, they memorized them, they went on stage, boom, they were done. And so knowing that, you know, I, we've actually, I've actually run uh, uh, productions using that model of rehearsal. And it's really fascinating because it changes the dynamic, not only of the rehearsal, but of the play itself. Mm. Because what actors end up doing is they pay much, much more attention to the language than they do the kind of 
the meta activity around the language, the blocking and things like that. There's, um, I, I think that there are multiple references inside Shakespeare's of, and also from contemporary writers to the notion that the play took two hours to recite. Is that, was it, was it, was that, is that true in your view? And does that imply that the, the rate of expression must have been just very high? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I, it's generally believed today that most plays on average took between two and a two and a half hours then. And it's, I think it was delivery. Um, I think it was also because there was no, there were no scene changes. So it was continuous action. Yeah. You know, when, when one scene, scene ended, you know, somebody came in on one door on they one walk side in, of the they stage walk out. and people, they walked okay. out. So it was, it was a kind of constantly, you know, fluid, you know, acting, um, scene and then so that sped things up and i think also um the way that actors act today is they they you know they're they're acting through often through emotion or through characterization as opposed to just reciting the language and so they'll take present pregnant pauses they'll you know they'll sigh they'll wait before they begin their big soliloquy and, and back then again it was it was rapid fire it's just the language let's let's just go through it get it done. The language itself has all the expressive qualities you need. And I don't mean to say that actors were robotic in the delivery. I think they were very expressive, but they were expressive by, they were highly trained to speak the speech, as Hamlet says, as, you know, as it was written, not to sort of um, try to interpret it in ways that were beyond the text. Do you, um, I think you, I think this implies that you have done some substantial directing yourself i've done some directing a little bit of acting dramaturgical work i mean it's sort of been in between many of the other things that i've done as a scholar hasn't been my primary activity and do you miss it you know i really do um i do actually i i do i think about that when i go see a play now i sort of get that itch but it's funny i would in, in some ways i think i'm still doing it so i, I was asked when when I applied for my last job as a college president, when I was at St. John's, one of the faculty interviewing me, you know, asked in this, you know, I think I think it was a group setting where there were a group of faculty asked me and said, well, you know, you know, what is your leadership style? Which I think is, I hate that question, right? Like, as if like everybody has this like prepackaged idea of what they do for leadership. I said, what is your leadership style? And I thought about it for a moment. I said, you know what? Um, my job as a college president or as a dean, which I was before that, is essentially the same job as the director of a play. Your job is to create and maintain an overarching vision and then get a whole bunch of people together, all of whom think they are the most important person in the production, and get them to all work together towards a joint vision. Well, So you have to kind of satisfy their their sort of sense of being... Uh, central and critical and important while making sure that what they're doing is actually being a team player. And that's exactly what it means to be a college president and have faculty and administration that you're constantly doing that. You're constantly sewing the team together towards a a kind of overarching vision. It's not a very flattering portrait of the cast characters, is it? No. And I'm sure I'm just as guilty as anybody else of the same vices, but I think that's, uh, I think it's right. Look, faculty tend to be, um, in their minds, tend to be kind of independent operators who are, you know, who have, 
their area of specialty, their discipline, and they take great pride in what they do. Or vainglorious prima donnas traipsing around stage. Okay, you said that. I didn't. I don't want to get in trouble. I, well, I think that's what I heard you say, man. Because you have been a devotee and a practitioner, um, a student of, a teacher of Shakespeare, and although that's not your day-to-day anymore, <clears throat> apart from missing the experience of being steeped in Shakespeare when you go see a play, are there times in your day, are there times on your vacations, are there times when you're talking to your wife or your family or whatever it is, where during which something from the body of work of Shakespeare occurs to you, pops in your head, and you become, you daydream, you think about it, you it occurs to you, it invades you. And if so, are there a few moments, soliloquies, plays, characters who come up the most, um, most frequently for you? And are you willing to share a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so again, I'm, I'm going to confess uh, uh, that I'm not going to be particularly original here in what I'm about to say, because I'm going to talk about Hamlet. You don't know that. Well, um, Hamlet's great. But- yeah. Hamlet, yeah, I know. But, but not a lot I, of people know. think about Hamlet. They like they they think like they can say Hamlet to be or not to be, but they don't. Yeah, they don't. They don't. They can't. They can't. They can't like say that they think about Hamlet. So go ahead. Don't don't okay, don't self so self-deprecation. So, so so I think um, I think a lot about the modern condition, uh, about the state of the world today, about the tensions that you know are are sort of constantly straining us as a society, a culture, like, what does it mean to be modern? What does it mean to be um, a human being in this kind of, uh, you know, in a world where uh, truth itself seems to be mercurial. And I think a lot about Hamlet in that, in that sense, because in many ways, I think Hamlet is kind of the avatar of, of the modern person an avatar of modernity itself. You know, what is Hamlet, what's the situation that Hamlet finds himself in? He, you know, his father is dead under suspicious circumstances. His mother has just remarried, his uncle. Uh, He feels alienated. He's at court. And then this ghost shows up and says, hey, I'm your father. Guess what? I was murdered. You need to go fix this. This is, this is your, this is your job. Um, but the way that the ghost puts it is really fascinating. He doesn't say Hamlet avenge my death. Although in an earlier iteration of Hamlet, a play, what we call the Ur Hamlet, that was not written by Shakespeare, but performed before Shakespeare's time. We know that the only line remaining from that earlier play is the ghost coming on stage saying, Hamlet, Hamlet, avenge thy father's death. Mm. It was like, it was like the, you know, the go ahead and make my day of the Elizabethan mm. period, a line that sort of resonated. Shakespeare changes that. And when the ghost shows up, he doesn't say avenge my death. Just remember says, me. Remember me, remember yeah. thy poor father. Yeah, and, it, me. and the burden put on Hamlet adieu, adieu, is the burden adieu, of memory. Uh-huh. The burden is the burden of memory. And so Hamlet is called to act in the world today um, but it is this sort of sense of memory mm-hmm. of, you know, of obligation of being tied to the generations that have come before being tied to codes of conduct and moral systems mm-hmm. that actually prevent him from acting throughout the play kind of gets entangled in, in memory. And once you start paying attention to memory and Hamlet, it's everywhere. The play is saturated 
with references to memory. Um, and so, I mean, in fact, the, practically the first thing Hamlet says in the play, I think it's the third line he speaks is heaven and earth must I remember. Mm. And he's he, at that point, he's talking about the fact that his father died and his brother got remarried quickly. But, mm. and so you start, so you, so you start thinking about it. And so in many ways, I think the, the, um, the, the most salient feature of the modern condition is the struggle between memory and forgetting. Mm. So, you know, by the time we get to Nietzsche, you know, Nietzsche essentially says um, to act, to be autonomous, to be able to, um, you know, act according to one's will, you must mm. forget. You have to erase everything that's come before you. And that gives you a kind of free range to do what you will, because if you don't, you'll be bound by the past, by legacy, by that. And, mm. and I think that that in many ways is what we're struggling with in the modern world. This sort mm. of, we live, in a, we live in a nihilistic environment, right? That really is ever more rapidly trying to erase everything that's come before so that we can chase this illusion of human autonomy and human will. And, um, and I think Hamlet is a sort, of, sort of the avatar of that. So when I think about our moment, you know, I do, I find it very helpful to reflect on, on, on Hamlet. I love this answer. And um, just to round it out, how often does this occur to you? Twice a day, 40 times a day, once every two weeks? Just even, <laughs> moment, even momentarily, how often does it just flit across your brain? I don't know. I, let's, 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 I don't know. This particular instance is something I've been thinking about for a while, but I think about the modern condition constantly um, because, you know, it's somebody who's in, who's involved with higher education, who's creating an institution. You have to be able to identify what it is that your, um, what your institution should be committed to, what people should be committed to. What is it, you know, how do you, you know, where have things gone awry? Where are things, where is there hope for the future? And so thinking about these things constantly is a process of self-reflection. And, you know, again, because I live with so many of Shakespeare's characters in my head, uh, you know, oftentimes it manifests in that way. You know, I, I think you needn't be sheepish about it. The uh, One of the many things I've discovered that uh, very special people do very often is they often have lodestars. Often they have never mentioned these lodestars to anyone in their lives, including mm -hmm. spouses, or if anyone their spouses, and they do it once every 20 years. But they have touch points um, to whom they refer mentally um, sometimes their parents, sometimes characters, often characters, often professors of their lives, sort of rabbis of their lives, but often fictional characters or things they've read or authors. And it comes up a lot, like 10, 20 times a day when they really actually both acknowledge it, pay attention to it, and then say it out loud. And so I, it wouldn't surprise me anyway if if your answer was like constantly. I think about it all the time. I think, I think about Hamlet all the time. Like that, kind of, that would be something that would not surprise me. Um, but related question, how often do you talk about this? Um, not often, I guess. Um, yeah, not often. I mean, much more so when I was a professor and, you know, it was my job to unpack, you know, these uh, unpack ideas for, for students and, and to sort of, uh, you know, circle around the ideas that seem most important, but not as much these days. Well, it's a private thought now. It's not part of your mission. Right? Yeah. It's, pri it's a private thought. It's a reflection on your exteriority and in your interiority, as I, as I heard you. Did I hear you well? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think I agree with you about there being, you know, let's say several signal moments or reference points in, in one's life that you come back to. I think that's right. Pano Catalos, continuing to interview himself. Pano, give us another one. We have, <laughs> we have Hamlet. We have Hamlet. Now we've just used the word several. We, we shall not let this pass by idly. Give us another one. Uh, okay. Uh, I'll give you two, but I won't go as in, in as much detail. Um, so one, I think for me, is uh, uh, Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky. And, um, you know, I, when I realized that in the Brothers Karamazov, you know, the, the Brothers Karamazov the, was like easily like the worst Shakespeare play. Yes. Yeah, Shakespeare did not. That was not. He, if Shakespeare had written that, it was probably. Thank you. Thank you. Second. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. It probably. Probably. Look at me. Doing the audio. No, I'm not. You know, looked at me like, what the hell? Yeah. I'm, I'm much more promiscuous than that. I'm not. Um, I'm not. You know, monogamously Shakespearean. Um, okay. So, brothers Karamazov, and and the fact that you know the three brothers, um, Ivan, Dmitri, and Alexei. Theodore, Dmitri, and Ivan. Okay, Ivan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Theodore, are, yeah. In many ways, Theodore's a father. Uh, Ivan ah, Dimitri, Alexei, I'm sorry. Good, thank you. That's okay. Is that they? Alexei, that they, Alexei yeah, he's. Uh, they each, uh, Alyosha, they call him as well. Um, okay. But they they each map onto uh, sort of Plato's vision of the soul, right? The tripartite uh -huh. soul. So, you know, there's Dimitri who represents the appetite. You know, he's a very, you know. Uh, carnal and you know passionate person there's Ivan or ivan who represents the intellect he's a very you know kind of remote um rational person and then there's alexi Alyosha who represents the kind of spiritual side of the human psyche and you know reading thinking about those three characters and then thinking about the platonic model of the tripartite soul you know for me hmm. One of the things I often think about at any given point, am I or is somebody else? I think, how much are we in Alexi and Yvonne or Dimitri at any given point? I think we're all three of those, but they they appear in different proportions. So sitting in this meeting as I am today, a contentious meeting, a difficult meeting, I'm trying to accomplish, which part of the soul am I exhibiting yeah. or is inhabiting me now? That's exactly. fantastic. Oh my God. Yeah. All right, keep going. What's the other one? Uh, so I think other uh, another touch point would be um, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. So, oh it, so that you know the most famous line in Leviathan, you know, which is work of political philosophy written in the mid seventeenth century in response to the English Civil War. The most famous line of Leviathan was that you know the life of man is nasty, poor, solitary, brutish, and short. Yeah, and because of that, because of that fact, according to Hobbes. Um, you know, we need to um, create a power structure, an absolute power structure that will essentially intervene, keeping human beings from harming one another and moving towards, you know, some sort of common good. And that's an idea that I struggle with all the time, whether or not Hobbes is right or wrong. Um, because on the one hand, what he it, what he implies is that, um, human beings can't overcome our selfishness, that we are radically selfish creatures, and that all we ever do is aim ourselves towards our desires and race after them until something gets in the way and pushes us in a different direction. And, uh, it, you know, on many days, that seems about right to me, that human beings Oof. are radically selfish creatures aiming for our desires. 
But on the other hand, I don't really believe that. I really think that human beings can be selfish, but that the moral matrix of humanity is much more complicated and that we can also be selfless or find mutual interest or things like that. So, you know, I, I often struggle with that notion, you know, on, on whether or not Hobbes, and Hobbes is often thought of as sort of the, the you know, the, the progenitor of, of modern politics and political philosophy, you know, was he right? And if he's right, what are the consequences of that? And if he's wrong, what are the consequences of that? So I, I you know, that's another touch point for me. If he's, if he's, okay. So, so your guy who's decided to lead and now start a university, which answer to that question prompts you to start a university? He's right or he's wrong? Uh, that he's wrong. Um, must be. And, I mean, must and, be. Yeah. Um, and, and here's... It is, a, it, is, it is an optimistic and aspirational, right, yeah. uh, hopeful and, endeavor, right, uh, to start a university. Absolutely. I mean, to build, right, not to tear things down. And um, I mean, I think... I think in my heart and to elevate and to elevate people instead of to squash them. Yeah. In fact, you know, if I had to diagnose what's wrong in higher education, I would say that um, too many people have um, have come to believe what Hobbes was suggesting. And that is essentially that all human relationships are relationships of power. And that ultimately, this is is not Derrida's fault. This is Hobbes's fault. I, I have no evidence that Derrida or Foucault read Hobbes, but they're in the same thought stream for sure. Uh-huh. So Hobbes to Marx to Foucault to Derrida. Yes. Although I think it's probably, there are probably some twists. Foucault, to, Foucault to Marx. Yeah. Huh? But, but, but yeah, but, but basically, you know, the, I mean, the, the basic premise that human beings are reducible to, um, essentially appetites and that our, no, our core nature is so selfish that every relationship is one of domination and submission. And I just don't think that's true. I think that's wrong. I mean, Elizabeth, I know that's wrong. And I, I think we can empirically prove that's wrong. Um, we can we can prove that there are people out there who turn that on its head and rather than, you know, um, subject another person to their own will and, and make them submissive, actually sacrifice themselves for other people, which is the opposite like who? of that. Like, I mean, you know, any uh, Socrates, <laughs> let's go all the way back. I mean, anybody who's, who's willing to live up for a principle that they think is for the betterment of humanity mm. and who, and, and who's willing to sacrifice themselves for that, mm. I think is, is, um, is essential. And, and if you're a Christian, that dynamic is of sacrifice is at the very core of the Christian story. The idea that the all-powerful, omniscient, divine being would become incarnate and suffer and suffer fully as a human being for the sake of creation of the beings that you created, right? That is that exactly turns on its head the idea of submission versus sacrifice. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I think, like I said, empirically, I think there, there's enough evidence in the world that we are much more complicated beings than simply beings that are um, engaged in, in a, a sort of bilateral power struggle. Okay, so we have Hamlet, we have the three brothers Karamazov, we have 
um, the dowdy, coruscatingly negative Thomas Hobbes. Um, these are the three touch points. You think about them frequently. You're sitting around in another meeting with yet another person who's come into your office to offer you money or complain about the water cooler or to talk about the new revised and more expensive architectural plans of building C over there at the northwest tip of the campus. And you're like, Hamlet, Vanya, Hobbes. And this is what's coursing through your mind and your bloodstream. And then you breathe out, you exhale, and you deal with what's in front of you. Are we getting a picture? Um, yeah, I think that's not entirely inaccurate. I mean, well, I, it's know, marvelous. I think that's right. It's marvelous, and I and I and I do uh, say again. I think more of the people I talk to who are special um, have some version of this uh, behavioral pattern than uh, don't, especially if they're willing to at least observe it in themselves. Um, okay, so wait. Like getting back to kind of tachlis here. So here you are, a thinking man's thinking man, or a thinking woman's thinking man, and. Lo and behold, you decide to become a university administrator. You decide to give up the endless drudgery of Shakespeare dramaturgy for the limitless delights and pleasures, perhaps even carnal pleasures, of university administration. How does that happen? And did you make a good choice? So first of all, I categorically deny that there are any carnal pleasures associated with university administration. So I, I, I stipulate that. that you must be right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can only imagine you're right. Uh, look, I never... I, Drinking I, I from never, Victory Goblet from the sports team? No, nothing? Nothing. I, there's nothing. Um, I, I had no intention of ever becoming an administrator. Um, you know, People who do tend to follow a certain pathway, you know, try to become the department chair and take over committees and this and that. And you sort of somebody at some point taps you on the shoulder and makes you an assistant dean of something. And then you do, you know, there's a whole ladder. I had no interest in any of that. Um, I was just, you know, I was a professor uh, first at University of San Diego and then at Loyola University of Chicago, teaching English, theater, drama, et cetera. And, um, no, really, I, I mean, completely absorbed in that. I mean, it was, it was just really a great pleasure and, and a wonderful thing to do with one's life. Um, and then I got a call one day from a, a mentor of mine who said, you know, um, Valparaiso University, which is just outside Chicago in Indiana, uh, they have this really wonderful honors college. It's called Christ College, and it's a, it's a great books honors college. So that for the you know first year or two, the students in this honors college are reading great books of literature, philosophy, history, et cetera, uh, and they're looking for a dean. And he's like, and he's you know, and he said, you know, I think I think this would be right up your alley. And it intrigued me. I thought you know that particular kind of curriculum um, is something that I think is um, it's rare to find at, in higher education today and, and something that I think could be very valuable for students. So, you know, he was a mentor. So I said, well, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll email them and I'll, you know, I'll take a look at it. 
and I did, and I was sort of fascinated by it. And and I was really drawn more to the the honors college, the people who were teaching there, to this really distinctive program. Um, and applied for the job, and I had zero administrative experience. It's like zero. You know, I I hadn't even been like a crossing guard, and um, and for some bizarre reason, they hired me. Um, and so I, you know, suddenly I'm a dean, you know, and and uh, and I'm enjoying this. And uh, I really, I came to really love having a a kind of um, sh- sort of shaping role over a, a part of an institution that I really, you know, really felt passionate about. And I realized that you can be passionate about things within higher education and want to foster the success of of those parts of institutions that you that are really um, compelling and beautiful. So I enjoyed it. And then, you know, three, three and a half years later, it, the exact same thing happened. I got tapped on the shoulder by a different mentor of mine who said, you know, um, well, if you love this program at Christ College, St. John's College, you know, the world's oldest great books college is looking for a president. And, you know, maybe you would enjoy doing that. And I and I thought, I thought that sounds, you know, that sounds pretty cool, you know, being president of this great books college. I said, okay, I'll throw my hat in the ring. I mean, I never, ever thought they would hire me. Because again, I had, okay, I had three, three and a half years of administrative experience, but to be a college president, I mean, that seemed like, you know, beyond reach. And again, you know, by some sort of um, miraculous twist of fate, you know, they decided to to hire me to do that. And uh, so I was able to to jump into that role. And again, I found, a, you know, a wonderful institution, a fascinating place, just amazing faculty students who were curious, um, it was just a joy. And so what I realized was that, you know, institutions can exhibit a joyful quality, uh, institutions of higher learning, if, um, if they're oriented towards the right things. What are the right things? Well, in, in the case of each of these programs, um, it was a passion for ideas, the love of the written word, the love of art, the love of thinking about things and the cross currents of history, asking deep questions about humanity. Um, you know, this, these kind of curricula really uh, encourage and enable those things. And so, you know, like that's what, that's what, that, that's what, should be higher in higher education. Those things, those things that compel us to self-reflexively think as deeply as we can about the human condition. Um, that to me, like that's that's worthy of pursuit. So you're describing you're describing the liberal arts. You're not describing STEM, right? You're describing. Um, I think the key phrase was something like an introspection in the pursuit of the improvement of the human or the understanding of the improvement of the human condition. I think that's some, some, some approximation of the key phrase of what I think you just said. Um, that is not a necessary precondition for success in the A or B sciences or engineering as I think about it. Do you disagree with me? I do. I disagree because I think that um, a common misconception is that the liberal arts are coterminous with the humanities. Um, 
But okay, in fact, so you're the liberal, the seven, okay. You mean like the trivium and the quadrivium is what you're talking about? Right. The liberal, liberal arts. You get all Greek on me, all Roman on me, all classical. That's what you're going to do? Uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's always my, like my, my trump card. I, I bring out the last. No, but I, look, I, I don't mean, I don't mean, I, fine. I guess what I meant was the humanities. I, I guess what I, <clears throat> I guess what I meant was that the, the great books uh, program, which is necessarily, entirely or nearly entirely a humanities program is tailor-made for the important questions as you've articulated them. It just seems tailor-made for it. And um, it, also would occur, it also would seem to me that if you want to study, let's say, the engineering of buildings, which we call architecture, mm -hmm. and the successful construction of those buildings, then you want to have possibly inspiration of or from or by <clears throat> aspirational ideas that might elevate human people, human, human beings, not just provide shelter and warmth because you could have a building with no windows, for example, or you could have a building with tiny spaces, right? Sort of Japanese um, businessmen hotels. I think they're called the salarymen hotels, you know, those tube hotels. Right. Uh, they do the job, but there's no, there's, there's a lot of human suffering in them or implied by them as well. Um, so I, I guess, I guess I can, I, oh, let me let me let me return. To, I, so I, I think let me push this even further because I, I don't yeah, think let's, let's skip to that part. Skip to the part that's yeah. like not vanilla. Go to the part that's different. I, I don't think that it's simply that engineers become better engineers because they read a little bit of Shakespeare. All right. And they're more human because of that. We like inject them with something called the humanities. Great. I actually I actually think a true liberal education. Uh, and a true great books education comprises both what we would think of as qualitative learning and quantitative learning. In other words, the arts of letters and the arts of numbers. So for example, at St. John's, even though it was a great books program and everything was done in great books, the study of mathematics, the study of, of sciences was front and center. The very first book that students read and you did mathematics across all four years for mathematics was Euclid's geometry. So, okay, so let's geometry read being, geometry being one of the quadrivia, right? Like one of like the quadrivia right, is so geometry. Let's read Euclid and let's and, and, and let's come to understand geometry by coming to understand how geometry was first conceived. Yeah, I mean the very first line of Euclid geometry is what is a point? It's a philosophical question. Like what is a point? Like what does that mean to have something in the world in the universe called a point? Hmm. And so to basically understand the ideas that underpin the sciences, mathematics, and come to understand ourselves as observers and participants in knowledge creation. So an exercise we would do at St. John's at the very beginning of um, what we would loosely call the study of biology, life sciences, is that the class would be sent out into uh, the, the gardens at St. John's with these beautiful magnolia trees. Mm. And they would have to sit there for 90 minutes undisturbed with a sketchbook and draw a magnolia tree and the blossoms and that and the purpose was for to teach them how to observe with as much detail as possible the natural world and then to figure out what kind of questions emerge when you're paying careful attention like why does a tree have a trunk <laughs> what is what is what is this branching phenomenon mm. mean like you know what is the relationship between tree and the other you know foliage around it the other fauna around it like and so something that's not knowledge you're describing understanding or perspective 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. But, but which, but which is the handmaiden of knowledge? Well, and and the catalyst for utility, right? So, um, yeah. which is the answer to the question I was asking about the the connection to STEM, I suppose. Um, yeah. Um, okay. No, that's that's yeah. I think I think that's persuasive. Um, but did I did I did I leave you no, no, hanging? Or there's something else you want to say? I think that, I think that's persuasive. No, no. I think, um, I'll take I'll take persuasive. I'll I'll just stop there. Right, the sale is made. Just stop talking, right? <laughs> As the old man says. Um, okay, so um, so now you're the president of the University of Austin, and. We will not spend a lot of time talking about the University of Austin because you do spend a lot of time elsewhere, uh, but we need to talk about it. Um, what is the University of Austin? And a sentence or two or longer, if you wish. Why does it exist and why, in your opinion, must it exist? Why does it need to exist? Well, University of Austin is, as of a few weeks ago, uh, America's newest university. We've received our charter from the state of Texas to be a degree-granting university. So we have... Um, you know, we're 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 beginning to uh, recruit our first class of freshmen who will come in fall '24. We're hiring our faculty. We're completing a campus that we've been working on in downtown Austin. Um, so, in one sense, we're another university. We're a new university. Um, on the other hand, to 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 found a university today is a um, rather audacious thing to do. Because it's yeah, you know, it's so challenging, so difficult to pull together the resources, fight through regulation, um, you know, rally the people around an institution that need to support it to move it forward. So you would only do something like this under circumstances that practically compelled you to do it. And I think what compelled those of us who are involved with the University of Austin to embark upon this project, and we started just two years ago, so it's been a very rapid we've made rapid progress um, was um, circling back to what we were talking about earlier, this sense that, um, that I don't want to say universities, because I think maybe that's both too narrow and too broad, but the sense that um, the culture at large had succumbed to a kind of zero sum nihilism um, that, that this, you know, this, this, um, the power dynamic we talked about earlier had, 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 had become a kind of default position for most people who thought seriously about the world. And that this was a root cause of many different evils, um, political polarization, um, you know, a kind of flight from, from, um, objective truth, all these sorts of things. And that universities, had a particular responsibility to push back against, you know, this, this narrative, this way of seeing the world. And yet most universities had actually become accomplices in promoting this kind of, and I, again, I don't want to say universities, I think elements within universities, let's put it that way, have had been sort of pushing this way of seeing the world. And so it seemed that if, you know, if, if what we're encountering in the world today is is this ambient nihilism where everything seems to be pulled down or pulled apart, that the best and only possible thing we could do would be to create new institutions, to create new things. And 
the sheer act of creation, the sheer act of trying to bring something into the world that was um, oriented towards a, a more um, fulsome sense of human truth, uh, just trying it and, and hopefully succeeding at it would be a good in and of itself. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's what pushed us to do this. So this is not the University of Thomas Hobbes. This is the University of John Locke and Ralph Cudworth. I don't know who Ralph Cudworth is, but... Uh, Ralph Cudworth was the, he was the Regius Professor um, of Hebrew at, um, at Cambridge. And he was, he was the chief critic during Hobbes' lifetime of Hobbes. And then Locke is the oh. other guy. Locke is, the, okay. Locke is the guy who got more famous. Well, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I learned something. Um, the, no, it, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was definitely much more locked than Hobbes. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, so there, there's something, there's some, there's, there is a foul stench upon the land, which is the scent of power dynamics everywhere, pervasively in all things. This has taken hold as if a religion in the American university, and now comes the time to stem this tide and reverse it by forming an alternative university which may stand for the opposite propositions or alternative or substitute propositions, that the pie might get bigger if we just think about it hard enough, that the world might be brighter tomorrow than it is today, that you and I have responsibilities to one another that are to be celebrated, ensconced, and elevated, and that there is something in the soup that is not just primordial, but that might inspire us to imagine that you and I can together make each other better. Um, I mean, yes. I mean, you say that it, 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 it almost sounds too audacious to imagine that, you know, one institution could stem any sort of tide. Um, I mean, I would, I would maybe put it a little, um, less dramatically, um, look, you do what you got to do. Uh, you know, I'm one you person, the people around me are one people. And if Finally, you just, if you, if you, if you feel that the world needs new institutions then you have to build them, I mean, is that, By the way, that is know, an American idea. There's nothing yeah. like God bless Americans, nothing more American than that. If you uh, feel yeah. that you got to do it, you got to do it. You build another institution. That's it. That's a, that's what yeah. you do. That's, and that's what you do. And then, and and I think what we're doing, our particular let's call it charism, is in recognizing that building itself, the creative activity is um, is immensely valuable, especially in in times like the ones we live in. We're building Are a you university. Religious? I see yeah. an icon on the shelf behind you. Are, are you religious? Yeah. Use the word charism. That's a very religious word in my. I am in, religious. In my, Although in my, in my tradition, my it's not. What? Charism is a much more Catholic term. I'm not Catholic. Much but, more Catholic, but right? Yeah, I, I, yeah, but I, I, but I like the term. I'm not Catholic. I'm Orthodox, but, um, uh, but it is, but it is. Um, well, it's a very religious word. Am I wrong? That's right. It's true. Right? Oh no, no, you're completely yeah. right. Um, okay. I, but what I think of charism to mean is something like a particular calling, calling driven mission. Right. Um, and, and I think for us as an institution, this charism is, um, 
to build an institution to graduate generations of builders and founders and creators. So our particular goal is to educate young people with the giving them a sense of urgency to build and create capacity to build and create across all different um, but, areas. But hang on, hang on. Needs. I think that I think that's uh, as I understand it from afar. You live it. I'm a, a, a distant observer and friend of the mission, um, or friend of the family, whatever. But the I, I think you're I think you're not completing the thought. Um, you can build a generation of founders and builders of people who want to charge rent and tax others emotionally and financially and seize through appropriation. Um, I think what you need, what you're doing is creating a, a gener or aiming to create a generation of builders and founders who build and found in the spirit of building and founding. Yeah. Um, yeah. right. And not taxing and appropriating. I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's autotelic, but it, but it is it's it's you have to finish that sentence, I think, because otherwise it's it could just be that a repeat of what I think you have observed, and then you've become what you have beheld. I, I think no, I think that's right. I think that's a fair amendment to make. Um, you know, and, and again, I think the way we've structured the academic curriculum it makes that readily evident, right? So, you know, we're not just going to bring in some student and give them the capacity to write code and then have them go out and, you know, start a tech company. And, you know, it's some sort of like the fact that they're starting a company is in of itself, uh, you know, an unadulterated good thing. Every student at the University of Austin goes through our two-year intellectual foundations program. That's our core program. And most of their freshman and sophomore year is taken up with the intellectual foundations program, which is a comprehensive liberal arts program asking the great human questions through literature, philosophy, the sciences, mathematics. In other words, we need to foster within these, within our students, the deep capacity to understand what's at stake when they make the decisions they make so that when they do build things and create, hopefully, and there's no guarantee, but hopefully you have forged them in a way that they are, um, you know, morally responsible individuals, morally driven individuals, however that's construed. Is the University of Austin, UATX, the anti-woke university? Um, no. <laughs> why not? I mean, I, there's no, like... Uh, I think some people think it is. That's why I'm asking you that question. So, that was, so you know, you're saying no, it's not. Originally, when we made our announcement, just because some of the people attached to the project, like Barry Weiss, and that you know, people made an assumption that um, our you know our our motivation was to be engaged in the culture wars, and it's sort of the the opposite of that. First of all, you you don't build an institution to be against things; you build an institution to be for things, right? So you can't be anti anything. You're for what are we for? We're for open inquiry. We're for creation. We're for you know, civil discourse that builds civil society. I mean, we know what we're for. And I think that's that's what you build a university around. That's one thing. Secondly, um, you know, I, I, I think whatever woke is, I think it's a brief footnote in the history of, 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 of uh, human civilization. I mean, that's not, it's not important enough. You're not the university against buggy whips. No. 
<laughs> no, exactly. It's not important enough to even address. We don't. We don't even use that term as an. I, I, I categorically tell everybody. I'm like, the University of Austin does not use that term because it's trivializing. There are many more important things that that I've, we I've, have I've to heard deal you with. Say it, I just wanted to make sure, give you a, an opportunity to say it publicly. Okay, if you haven't Thank already. You. All right. Um, so let's let's go back to, to another thing that that is a problem. I think that you have talked about, published about, written about commented on um, many times, which is there's been a, a change, if I've understood you well, and you should correct me if I'm wrong, there's been a change in the way universities spend their money over the years, over the decades. Um, there has been the growth of administrative bloat. Um, there has been a, a change in the ratio of money that's been spent on administrative overhang, um, bureaucracy versus, let's say, um, education, tuition, student life, whatever it may be, maybe I'm getting it wrong, but in the same way that the military has wrestled with the notion that a lot of money is now spent on the back office versus lethality, um, the universities are getting a lot less lethal <laughs> because they're spending more money on the back office. Um, can you amplify, correct, amend, and also yeah. plug the UATX uh, or the Pano-Canelos trajectory into that context? We don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but I'd like yeah. to educate our listeners on this because it really is something that you care a lot about, I believe. Look, it, it's undeniably true that that there's been a kind of metastasizing of administration at universities. I mean, the numbers are just stark. I mean, you know, you go to a place like Yale today and they have more administrators than undergraduates. Um, what happened? And, what happened? Well, so here, here's the, and just as a kind of side note, the number of faculty has not grown one iota over the past decades. Uh -huh. So the number of students has stayed the same, the number of faculty has stayed the same, but you have this kind of administrative, this kind of tentacular administration that keeps growing. Um, what happened is quite simply, what, that's what bureaucracy does, right? Bureaucracy self-replicates. Bureaucracy finds ways to extend its power by extending its reach. And, and so what we've seen is a kind of bureaucratizing of universities um, so that, you know, what used to be, so for example, students used to come to schools and, you know, is sort of roughly agreed upon that the faculty, the, the faculty were the reason that they were there, the other students to some extent, that their job was to learn, their job was to go to class. And, you know, you, like I did when I went to college, you'd sleep in a cinder block room somewhere and you'd eat kind of crappy food and then you'd go do the class thing and, you know, you know, maybe play basketball on the court or something in between, but but your primary activity was there. Whereas now universities have grown in such a way that the primary activity is the delivery of a kind of lifestyle for four years for students. Yeah, I think that's right. A, a, you know, a kind of sidebar of which is the sort of thing you do, you go to class once in a while. Mm. And so universities have become lifestyle providers. They become sort of club meds. And not every university, there are exceptions to this, but, you know, let's say the general trend is in that direction. Why is that problematic? Because now the center of gravity at universities is is in the hands of, of bureaucrats and bureaucrats have uh, their own agendas. Right? Bureaucracy is about conformity. Bureaucracy is ultimately about consisting, uh, convincing Durkheim, a large right? group of... That's, Dirk, that's yeah. Durkheim, Emil Durkheim. It's Durkheim, straight right. up. The purpose of every institution is to homogenize its population, right? To homogenize population, so so it even if in the like people complain today that that students um, can't express themselves and their ideas freely in in classes or with each other, and that is significantly true. 
Um, but even if you could, like even if you could go to class and have the most you know, fireworks going off all the time on the intellectual front and a free exchange of ideas and everybody walks away and they've, they've been enriched by that and, and the and the the um, experience you have in your your caf in the cafeteria in the dorm with other students is like just intellectually you know, just bursting at the seams and alive. Parallel to that, you have a bureaucracy that's trying to homogenize you, that sees as its job that you will exit the institution with conforming to a particular set of ideas about the world. And it, and it, you know, the way that it, the, the way that it um, sort of enforces its agenda is in, in things that are seemingly minor, but kind of insidious, everything from student orientations to the way that they um, regulate interactions between clubs and organizations to the kind of trainings that you have to do over time. There's a kind of, there's a parallel education going on and it's an education towards conformity. Mm. And, and, and that's really, I think what's, what's most insidious right now at universities. Mm. So, um, and, and that's something that people aren't aware of. So you have to break down the bureaucracy, not just for cost. I mean, cost is the cost of education has risen, you know, exponentially because of the rise of bureaucracy. But the issue just isn't the cost. The so there's, a, the there's, a, there's an unspoken and secret civics lesson that is pervading the day-to-day -day life of the students. And it has been foist upon them by bureaucrats, not by the educators. You, you said it better than I could. I think that's exactly right. Okay. Answering just briefly, because I don't want to spend much too much time on this. There's some other things I'd like to talk, uh, cover with you. Is the American university lost? Is it too far gone? Is, are the famous institutions of yesteryear going to just suffer under the weight of this bureaucracy? And if not, will the time to repair those universities be measured in years or decades or centuries? Um, so is, is American higher education lost? I don't think so. Um, I think the more elite institutions are at greater risk of reaching a point of no return than the other institutions. And, and the reason is this, um, they are so well-resourced they have so much sitting in endowments and so much sitting in their prestige that in order to change, to make significant change, you have to feel vulnerable. You have to feel scared, right? What's going to motivate you to, towards institutional change is the sense that there's something really important at stake. And I think the elite institutions, you know, they might, feel, they might feel uncomfortable now, but, but they don't feel vulnerable. They're immune. So, there's, no, there's no consequence. There's still enough right. money. But I think for institutions that are, you know, be below the elite institutions in terms of, you know, what they have in terms of resources and standing in that, there's a lot at stake if mm. they don't start to get things right. Students are starting to make selections about their colleges based upon whether or not they think they could live authentically at that college and speak freely and, you know, and have that... And, and more and more schools are noticing this. I know this because they reach out to me. I mean, I have I've had dozens of conversations with college presidents and boards of trustees and that uh, who are 
turning to us as a university and saying, okay, you guys seem to be getting things right now. What can we do at our own institution to course correct? I've seen, so, I've seen, I've seen, I've studied the matriculation numbers of some of the most famous high schools in America. And whereas 25 years ago um, or 30 years ago, the kind of the top shots were Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, depending on which school and which geography or Columbia or whatever, I see one school now emerging as coming up from behind as the top choice all the time. It's University of Chicago. It just keeps coming up over and over again as the top high schools are sending more kids to the University of Chicago than I had ever seen 25 years ago um, or 30 years ago when I last looked at it, really. Um, and it seems to be because they're at least more committed to something called free speech. And I don't know, it, doesn't, it may be less to do with the bureaucracy, right, which may also affect the University of Chicago. But I, that's what I think I'm seeing. Am I, am I wrong? Am I off base? I mean, I, that sounds right to me. I mean, I haven't looked at the data myself, but I think that's right. Um, I, I think University of Chicago retains um, a, a sort of a kind of aura of intellectual legitimacy because it stood by principles of free speech. It stands for them, not just stood by them. That's where I did my PhD. And it was, you know, I think it, although I was there a couple decades ago, I think it still retains that commitment. I mean, Chicago is also vulnerable. I mean, to the, to incursions. Must be. Um, Must that, be. And, and I, you know, I do hear the stories from people on the inside, but I think, you know, it's, it stands tall enough um, and, and by its principles that it does, it, it is attracting many of the best and brightest students. And again, that's, that's, I think, these are the kind of things that other institutions are looking at, right? They're looking at the, you know, the, the change of preferences and the, the you know, sort of change of the kind of uh, d demographic shifts towards particular kinds of institutions. And, you know, I think that they're, they're going, I think, I think most schools to survive will adjust, but mm. schools that don't worry about survival may not. Mm. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. That is not my voice. That is a real bell. It is now time for speed round on finally. Pana Canalos, Pano Canalos. Speed round. You're allowed to pass. Otherwise, speed round. Pizza, hot dogs, or hamburgers? Pizza. What are your best Ch and favorite toppings on pizza? Sausage. Chicago thin crust sausage pizza. Best shop for Chicago. You say Chicago thin pizza? Not deep thin dish? Crust. Not thin deep crust dish. pizza? Okay. What is the best place for Chicago thin crust sausage pizza, Pano Catalos? Lou Malnati's. Say it again. Lou Malnati's. Lou Malnati's? Yeah. Fantastic. I, they, will, they'll, they will be popular online after this podcast. Broadcasts. Best barbecue in Austin, Texas, where you are now residing? Uh, a place called La Barbecue. L.A. Barbecue. Are you mispronouncing L.A. Barbecue? No, it's, there's no. It's La. It's La Barbecue. <laughs> and what is it? Beef ribs, pork, pork ribs, brisket? What's your favorite? Uh, look, Texas is all about beef uh, and mostly about brisket. Brisket. That is the correct answer. Brisket is always the correct answer. Do you have a particular relationship with Greek food nowadays? Uh, yes, it's often in my tummy. Uh, <laughs> and any particular dishes that you love in particular or that you make in particular or that you relish in particular? I, I'm a, I'm a, um, an obsessive cook. I mean, I, I cook all the time. I make lots and lots of Greek food and I'm, I'm so obsessive that I recently had delivered to me 
my wife is Greek, but from Cyprus, there's a special Cypriot style barbecue that's kind of like a little mini rotisserie with these self-rotating, they call them suvlas, like, you know, mm. skewers that you, you do um, special dishes on, special roasted meats on and that and over, over wood fire and coal and that. So that's been my favorite thing to do lately. The fuku or fuka, faukau, right? The fuku, how do you pronounce it? You got it. Fuku, yeah. Fuku, yeah. Um, I wrote a short story once about Martha Stewart and her line of barbecues. Um, <laughs> so, wait, so so the, your particular dishes you're doing now are fuku, barbecue, Greek dishes? That's just right? been my latest, like my latest fun. Okay. What is your, what is, you're going to knock someone's socks off. They're going to come, closing dinner, come to your house, got to get the big check for UATX. They love Greek food. What are you throwing down on the table? Uh, main dish would be braised lamb shanks oh, and what goodness. are called hilopitas, which are little tiny square egg noodles. Oh. You braise the lamb, you cook it over the hilopitas, and it gets oh, all, and the, it gets all very, the juice. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, is Greek food your favorite ethnic food? And if not, what is? Greek food is. Um, yeah. I mean, a, a close second. Uh, I mean, again, not originally. I'm a, I'm also sort of obsessive about Italian food, especially regional Italian food. Must be. The January 6th riots, insurrection, cosplay, or some other dumb fucking thing? Dumb fucking cosplay insurrection. Would you like to recite any lines from Shakespeare? Uh, no. What are you reading right <laughs> now? What are you reading right now? Uh, what, what am I reading? I just, uh, I just picked up a new book. Um, uh, a, uh, I just finished rereading A.S. Byatt's Possession because she just passed away. I don't know huh. if you heard that. No, so I, I did not. So I, I hadn't read Possession since it first came out. So I, I just reread that and, uh, and I just read Kingsley Amos's, oh, um, the, the Riverside yeah. Murders, I think it's called. Oh. Fantastic. Uh, Kingsley or, or Martin? Kingsley. Yeah, that's the correct answer. Who will be U.S. president in 2025? Um, I, I, I mean, I, I would say probably Donald Trump. Which university presidents from any time period or college presidents, I'm not going to differentiate between university or colleges here, from any time period do you admire? Uh, two living presidents. One is Gordon Gee, who is president of West Virginia, but is sort of the most legendary college president. He's president of six different institutions. He's a um, an institution unto himself. And uh, and then I would say also Chris Nelson, who was my predecessor at St. John's College. He was president there for 26 years and a, a quiet, forceful, thoughtful, just wonderful human being. Thank you. Name... I'm going to say three, but you can name fewer or more. Three universities in the United States, apart from UATX and St. John's, that you admire, and briefly, why? Mm. Could be colleges. Yeah. Um, a place that I, I, I really admire, and it is very quirky, um, is Zaytuna College, which is in Berkeley, California. It's the 
I think the world's only Islamic great books college. Uh, and oh the, the fellow, the fellow How do you who started it, please. I've never heard of Zaytuna. Z, I think it's Z A Y T. Z A Y. I found it. Zaytuna. Wow. Z A Y T U N A or O U N A. I can't remember. Uh, uh, founded by a guy named yeah Sheikh Hamza, who I who I know a bit, uh, who actually had 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 done the master's program at St. John's and sort of said, well, he's you know he's Muslim. He said, what what would this what would this kind of format look like in a in an Islamic great books college? Oh, and I goodness. think it's just a Sounds wonderful. It's a really, really interesting place. Um, so I, I, I admire what they're doing there. Um, again, a small, quirky place. I, I really think Deep Springs College is, is yeah. fascinating and wonderful um, and um, eccentric and all those sorts of things. That's really and then, uh, and then um, I'm going to, here, here's a like real shout out curveball um, just because the, president is a friend of mine and I visited there not too long ago uh, just to sort of shine a light on hopeful things in, in higher education. Uh, I think Denison University in Ohio, which is a liberal oh, arts yeah. university in, outside of Columbus, oh. led by a wonderful man named Adam Weinberg. I visited there, the faculty. I think they're, they're the kind of school that's like grappling in the right way with the kind of contentious issues in higher education and really oh. doing wonderful things. Oh. Thank you. Three out of three, I would not have guessed. Um, any outside the United States that you particularly admire? A place that I find really fascinating and, and we have some history with is uh, in, in Guatemala, there's a university called Universidad uh, Francisco Marroquin. <laughs> and uh, it, it was founded 50 years ago, UFM. <laughs> um, it is, it's committed to uh, free market libertarian principles. And, um, you know, Hayek was one of the people who was involved with this project early on and others. And uh, what I find really, it's, I mean, I don't consider myself libertarian uh, by any stretch, but what I really love about this place is it was founded in essence, kind of at a time when Central America was sort of being ripped apart by civil wars and, you know, sort of Marxist driven militias and that. And a group of people said that we, we believe in, free markets, we believe in capitalism, we're going to start a university here. And they planted this university in an extremely hostile environment, mm. so much so that the first president actually had to go around Guatemala City, like, like wearing women's wigs and clothes, because so, he was under, he was under constant threat of assassination, and to wear like a bulletproof vest on the opening day. And, um, and they're still going strong. I think it's a, you know, what a great heroic story. And again, you know, whether or not you you're libertarian, or, you know, archly capitalist, the idea that an institution like this could be founded under those circumstances and sort of courageously carry on, I think is really, really just really admirable. That is extraordinary. Um, okay. Uh, naming names, but you don't have to answer if you want to, you don't want to, of course, which universities being specific, if you, if you will, and if not, let's just pass, which universities in America do you think have strayed furthest from their mission and have, have become most egregiously um, offending. I, I'll be honest, Michael. I, uh, I don't answer those questions mostly because I feel that I have a kind of um, uh, every university I know has good people in it trying to do the right thing, and I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. Fair deal. Let's return to lighter subjects. <laughs> when you travel, do you prefer cities or the countryside or the mountains or what? Oh, I'm completely city. 
And which city have you visited that you would like most to revisit? Right now, today. Um, the city that I go to most, I revisit the most, uh, not surprisingly, is London, which is my favorite city. But the city that, I've, that I'd like to revisit most right now is probably Vienna. Why? Um, I've only been once. Uh, I think I, I'm just fascinated with the, the pervasive musical culture, artistic culture there. I, I love Habsburg history. I just, that, that, that whole, that whole part of the world to me is just massively fascinating. And, and, uh, and, and so, you know, the, I, I love places that used to be like imperial capitals that have sort of seen better days, like, you know, Constantinople. <laughs> I think I, I, cities like that fascinate me. Uh, the two that you may, that you may add to that list, um, I think that belong in that list are Krakow and Kyoto, um, which I find to be remarkably similar cities, one to the other, uh, which don't necessarily belong in the same sentence, but I think they are similar. Um, Loki, I, I will uh, visit both. I haven't been to either, but yeah, I would love they're, to visit royal, both. They're royals, formerly royal cities that yeah. became non-capitals hundreds of years ago, and yet they retained their royal significance. And that that sort of residuum gives them both um, uh, different DNA that continues to mm. that continues to give off um, give off a scent and a power when you visit them. All right, last question uh, of this type: Is there a place you have not visited yet that you're very desperate to visit? Apart from Krakow and Kyoto, now that I've told you that they're Marvelous. It's funny you mentioned that. I've just had this conversation with my 14-year-old son. I, Japan. I've, I've not okay. been to Japan. Well, there so. we are. Pano, what else would you like to cover today? You've been a terrific sport. Um, we've covered many things. We don't have to do it all today because we hope we'll have you back one day. But the the is there something that – I have other things I'd like to ask you, but they would open up much longer discussions. Is there anything that you wish I had asked or that you'd like to – share in this American moment, this moment of war in the Middle East, this moment of great risk globally, this moment of war in Ukraine, this moment of modern tension that makes you think of Hamlet. Um, is there anything that you wish people would be asking you? Uh, the, the invitation is quite real. And if yeah. not, we can save it for another time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the one thing that I would one thing that I would, that I think about myself that I would hope people think about more generally is, um, have we lost our capacity to uh, envision a better future? I mean, I really, we don't talk about this anymore. I mean, we're so, and, and I'm, look, I don't, I'm the farthest thing from a utopian. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I'm not a utopian. I don't think that we're gonna somehow magically create um, some sort of, you know, society where, you know, all, all our ills have been, you know, thrown into the dustbin and all that. I just, I don't believe that at all. But, um, but I feel like we're so intensely presentist. Um, well, I, I, would, I, would, I would encourage you to reformulate that question because I have to tell you something. I think that Team Hobbes, Team Hamas, Team Barbarism, they do have an answer to the question whether the future can be better. Their answer sucks. It's awful. But they do mm -hmm. have an answer. And conversely, team civilization, 
team liberal thoughts does not have a clear answer because their answer accidentally is that the status quo or something that approximates this approximates the status quo is in fact the telos and it is against that that hobbs <laughs> that team hobbs is fighting they are convinced that this is a zero-sum game world, that the oppressed and the oppressor are the only two classes of people who exist. They seek to overthrow the status quo and to build a future that is more, let's say, distributed or redistributed according to their priorities. And so mm. their vision is very clear. I don't think it's trustworthy. I don't think they'll, even if they win this battle or that battle, set aside the war, they'll never achieve anything because their way leads to bloodshed and terror and the terror and disaster and cannibalism, literally and figuratively. But our team, the team I think that you represent, the team I think I'm on, is not doing a very good job of explaining why this is not the best of all possible worlds and we can do yet better. I do think that we have ideas, we have notions uh, one that's visible today, we can take or to leave it, is that we have to get off the rock. We have to make life interplanetary. That's a kind of a nice, not nice, that's a fantastical and fantastic idea. Nice was, was too minimalist. But we are not articulating well the wisdom that we've accumulated over centuries and a hope for a better future that may acknowledge the frailties of our current mechanisms of societal discretion or say they're inevitable and say they are perhaps, or say they're perhaps not inevitable. And here's how we can do a little bit better job or that this is the way that's the way. But I, I disagree with you. I do think that Vladimir Putin has a vision of the future. Xi Jinping has a vision of the future and they're articulating it very well. It is a disastrous vision of the future, but they are articulating it very well. Whereas our team is not. And so I would encourage you to reformulate that if you agree. With I, so I think I think I think I I'm persuaded. Um, Good. We I can stop talking. When, when I meant the we, I, <laughs> I think I was thinking more of the we of us and not yeah. the we of everybody. Yeah. Um, but I think that's right. But I I would modify that even further. Um, I I think one of the problems in the West right now generally is not that everybody's satisfied with the status quo. But that mm. a significant portion of at least the intelligentsia are convinced that the status quo is so awful mm -hmm. that it just needs to be torn down mm -hmm. without having a positive vision of where we go to. Uh -huh. You know, and it's it's a completely nihilistic vision. Mm. It's just a vacuum. It's a, you know, and that I think is 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 really really corrosive and pervasive. And I think people who have, let's say, the people who who I think may be more aligned the way that I see the world and you see the world are not articulating in any way a vision to counter that that isn't some sort of, you know, sentimental retrograde, like, well, you know, way back when everybody, you know, read Shakespeare and, you know, and weren't the Greeks kind of cool and that kind of thing, like backwards looking vision, reactionary vision. We're, we're not articulating a vision of how you can take the elements of of our culture and and continue to recombine them in ways that make us better people 
And if we become better people, then we become a better civilization. Uh, so that's, I mean, I, so, I think so maybe our, that's what I um, Possibly provocative question, but I think you'll like it. Never mind setting aside what I think you've characterized as kind of political revanchism or philosophical revanchism. You know, back then we read Shakespeare. Are you making the case for God? Um, I, I think I think I'm making the case for transcendence. Oh, um, wow, that was awesome. I think we have I think we should just stop on that note. Like if this were the movie, if this were the documentary of the great Pano Canalos, the trailer, the button on the trailer would be, I think I'm making the case for transcendence. Pano Canalos, will you come back on this podcast one day? Anytime, my friend. Pano Canalos, thank you for joining us for this terrific conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.